Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. This week, we are joined by co-founder of The Athletic, Adam Hansman. As an early subscriber to The Athletic, it holds a fond place in my heart. It launched in 2016, which is not that long ago. But remember, at that time, the idea of paying for content was still considered contrarian, a questionable business model at best. And at that time, newspapers and local coverage of sports was just dwindling. It was disappearing. So the idea of launching this hyper-local publication was not exactly attaching yourself or riding this massive market expansion, this growing TAM. It's very interesting to look back at that time and then consider where we are today. Adam shares a lot of the lessons that he took away from his experience building this business. And it's abundantly clear that he and his co-founder, Alex, built something that they wanted. They were solving a problem they experienced in their own lives. There's a lot to learn here, a lot of interesting takeaways from Adam. Please enjoy this conversation with Adam Hansman. All right, Adam, we are pumped to have you here. You've been a guest that we were interested in having for a long time. I think you could search through the transcripts to confirm that's the case. And we were toying with where to start, and we thought subscription businesses still all the rage. You and your co-founder were somewhat contrarian when you brought the subscription-based model back into media when content was free. I thought that was a good place to start just on the subscription business model, some of the lessons from there, and particularly coming out of Strava, an app for runners, something I use, to building The Athletic, which on the surface, they're very similar. They're subscription-based consumer apps, but they're very different in many ways as well. One's a media business, one's you're going in with very much intent. So maybe you could start there. What were the lessons that you were able to take away from Strava, implement at The Athletic? How much of the playbook for subscription grace businesses is applicable across the board? And how much is unique to each individual business? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to dig in and talk a little bit about the history. So my co-founder and I, met at Strava. And I would say the biggest thing in terms of very different business from The Athletic, but as you mentioned, subscription-based. We love the subscription model. Being at Strava was very instructive in terms of, I think for us, it was a lot about just building for users as opposed to building for advertisers. At Strava, at least in those days, nearly every employee was an endurance athlete, whether they were a runner or a cyclist, a triathlete. And I think that culture of just building 
products for you as the user was really inspiring and led to really cool things being built and users rewarding that cycle by paying for a service that was cut above what you could get for free. And so we were sitting around in 2015, planning to leave Strava and go start The Athletic. And I do think an underappreciated aspect of The Athletic over the course of our journey was the fact that while we were the founders, we were the business people, we were not necessarily taking a leading role in terms of influencing the coverage decisions themselves, but the fact that we were the number one and number two most active consumers of the product from day one. I think that was really important. We looked at the deconstruct the economics of how media companies make money or not and realized pretty quickly, even though paywalls were not in vogue, as you mentioned, it was the only way that we were going to really align with our users, as well as the journalists that we would go on to hire, bringing those parties together with a business model that made sense for everyone. That's where we landed. We can go back to the, the very beginning. We basically said, look, the unit economics of a city like Chicago, where we launched, we can make this work with a relatively small number of paying subscribers. And that was our early strategy. I think it's another underappreciated aspect was we did not launch with a huge budget. We did not try to go into every market aggressively from the beginning. We went into one market and we said, we need to come out of 2016 with a few thousand subscribers to prove that we could get people to pay. That was not going to be something that we tried to just turn on later. We were not able to raise a ton of venture capital in the very beginning. And so honestly, finding our way through user revenue was another nice aspect to it. I remember that first year was really hard, but every day we woke up, we worked really hard with our staff to create the feedback loop around subscription. And the really cool thing was we saw the best stories that we produced led to the best outcomes in terms of that subscription business and model. And that set the stage for really the next phase of expanding into every market, including internationally. And I can tell you that was a lot more fun. Yeah, I'm sure. When you think about building something for the user rather than the advertiser, what does that look like in the media business? What actions are you taking or not taking when you think about that specific framing? For us, it was really about the feedback loop, really trying to connect our editorial staff, the journalists with the end customer, not letting that relationship and that feedback loop get disintermediated. Even if that loop gets disintermediated by 5% or 10%, you're sort of starting to go down that path of why are we building what we're building and why are we putting out what we're putting out? So just the primacy of the subscription model, personally, I think not religious on this. I think both models can work and the athletic has introduced advertising since we were acquired by the times, but I think they can coexist peacefully. I tend to think subscription should lead and advertising should be, as I think the times puts it downstream from user revenue and just not try to have a 50-50 battle royale, but really lead with, we want to be predominantly subscription-based because it's the best way to align our product team, our editorial staff, the entire business with the needs of the end customer. And that was just so novel. And we didn't think any media company, certainly circa 2015, 2016, were thinking that way. And it really just came at the expense of users. Alex and I, a little bit cast over time as these tech founders because we were in San Francisco, but we're really just Sports fans were feeling like there wasn't a product for us. We both grew up reading the sports page of our local newspaper. Alex was from Philly. I'm from Cincinnati. 
And we just felt that that sort of quality product had sort of fallen away. We wanted to bring it back. When you were dreaming up The Athletic, or the premise for it anyway, how much media experience did you have other than being just voracious consumers of sports content? Basically zero. The natural next question is, because we love talking to outsiders in the media industry, partly because it's just biased, we are the same. What reflections do you have going into it, thinking about the media as a business model and now not on the other side, but having gone through seven, eight years of building a media business, high level reflections just generally on the state of media and building a business in it? We didn't know what we didn't know. We felt that we could overcome the lack of experience with just uh, persistence and the fact that we were sports fans and surround ourselves with great people that had a lot more experience than us. Our job was to hire well, set a vision, raise money, make sure the business was performing. I think the fact that we were outsiders worked to our benefit in a lot of ways. We didn't come in with preset biases of what could work or wouldn't work. I think that was a really healthy dynamic for us in the beginning. Even looking out at the landscape today, a lot of mostly gloomy news lately, all the blue chip publications, the LA Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, at least from the reporting that I followed, really still haven't gotten over the hump. And a lot of other digital outlets are struggling and have been in the news for all the wrong reasons. I think that outside energy is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's not to say there's any guarantees. We've seen some very wealthy individuals scoop up media publications and not necessarily turn those around instantly just with a snap of a finger. I do think there's a media echo chamber. I do think that our inclination was to be very data-driven. And that's not to say that folks in the space are not thinking that way or making decisions based on data, but that was really one of our core values, being as data-driven as we could and building that really into the culture. And I think a pretty novel way, including even just the way we shared a lot of data with our editorial staff, which was, I think, pretty novel. Can you flesh that out? I, I'm fascinated by it because you, know, you mentioned earlier the subscription model aligns the journalist with the reader much better. And then the data feedback mechanism, A, what data are you giving and how much anecdotal feedback as well are you giving? Maybe a reader sends you a message through a different channel, but it's actually related to a piece that a journalist wrote. How much of this stuff are you trying to feedback to share with them? Which pieces resonate? Honestly, at a higher level, I think that the most important lesson we learned, and I suppose to our credit, we learned very early on, was really the primacy of having as much of the top reporting talent as we possibly could and arming them with the tools, including, I think most importantly, the data to help the business grow. The reason people subscribed to The Athletic in the early days was not because we had a nice website, but because we'd hired their favorite reporter to cover the Cubs or the Bengals. And they saw a really interesting article and they couldn't help but pull out the credit card and go through that paywall. But basically, to give a little more detail there, for us, the way I like to think about it now is a top reporter on a given beat was what I like to call a local moat and that they have tremendous name recognition, credibility, deep relationships with their followers, with their sources. If we hired that person, newspaper could always backfill with someone else, but it would take a decade or more to replace the journalistic capital that we were bringing over with them. In terms of the way that we would eventually align with that talent, obviously the economics were really important. We tried to pay people really well, reward performance, give everybody in the company equity, which we did. Secondly, just as important was trying to nurture the company culture where reporters felt genuinely valued and have the time and the space to do great work. As I think the staff can attest, even to this day, we gave reporters direct access to their audience metrics, their subscriber metrics. 
I don't know if we realized how radical a decision it was at the time, but everyone could see the numbers. We had an entire team of content analysts who would basically mine the data, find the insights of, hey, here's a format that readers loved in one sport or in one market. Let's encourage the 200 or other beat reporters in other markets to try that out, if it makes sense journalistically. Personally, I was surprised. Most of the time, companies are not forthcoming with this kind of information because they're afraid it's going to be used against them somehow. But for us, it was just common sense to show the people who made editorial choices how those choices helped us as a startup without some kind of legacy revenue stream from printing newspapers or magazines to survive. And fortunately for us, the stories that performed well, that led to subscriber engagement, that led to new subscriber signups within a subscription model tended to be the kind of stories our staff wanted to do anyways. I would say that was the singular insight behind The Athletic, if I had to pick one thing. So being very talent forward, being very data driven, that combination, I think was our secret sauce. That level of transparency with your writers. It's funny, I can actually remember listening to the writers that I followed closely talking about some of the company meetings where their pieces would get featured. One person would be complimenting another. So it, it trickled even outside of the business, whether it was supposed to be or not. <laughs> but if you were thinking about that, I automatically start getting worried about, okay, well, this person covers this niche market. They're going to be upset that they're getting mixed in with the national reporters, yada, yada, yada. It sounds like it was a better environment than what I would have expected. Is that level of transparency? Because if you do provide it, it lock a lot of things where it provides those writers with insights. Was it really just a net positive? Is there anything that you would change when you think about that level of transparency and data that you are arming your staff with? I wouldn't change a lot. I think it was important that over time we learned how to balance out just a crude understanding or trying to make sure folks were not oversimplifying. If I hit my numbers, I've done a good job and recognizing that quality work is quality work. And there were folks on the staff with a huge Twitter following that could help the business drive a lot of new subscribers, people that were younger, earlier in their careers. And we tried to calibrate expectations accordingly, or even just, as you mentioned, the news cycle, a team might be really interesting one season and really boring in the next season. So I think we always tried to Remember the humanity of this was not trying to have a culture where it felt like we turned journalism jobs into sales jobs. I understand some people embraced it more than others. And the range of feedback that I would get from the staff was some people refreshing their metrics every five minutes to some people saying, I literally can't look at this because it stresses me out. And not trying to build a culture that felt like it was a trading desk at Goldman or something. I think over time we did rightly recalibrate. And the other thing was, and this gets into some of the later stages on our journey was going beyond Twitter and going beyond that core audience of fans who were already following a reporter that we'd hired. They were already very likely to say, sure, I'll try out The Athletic. Finding users via other channels that where we needed to reduce the friction of just having a hard paywall and finding ways to, to introduce The Athletic and our coverage to new segments of fans made the funnel metrics a lot more complicated, that was a real challenge. First few years of just a lot of dopamine and ringing the towel of Twitter, where our staff had large followings and diversifying our growth and our approach to growth. It's a really timely point you bring up because we're thinking about this a lot internally at the moment as well with our business. We've used Twitter reasonably effectively for a number of years. What's the next thing where you go and find people who aren't there, which happens to be quite a lot of the world? 
what were the most productive channels that you found in that time? And how did you go about executing that strategy? Yeah, I think it was interesting for a while there. Our primary audience source was Twitter. I think we were the only media company where that was true. But over time, email was a great channel for us. We rolled out audio coverage and podcasts. I think it was about 2018. Finding people that are primarily listeners who then go through that version of the funnel, finding people who want that morning routine of checking their inbox and finding the headlines and maybe clicking through to another story. It was different. It was less, I think, based on the individual bylines, which was our early wedge. And just, again, as Jan's understanding that there's different routines around following sports. Live games is another really interesting one where during a live game, you have people looking for the score. To this day, it's a question of what is the athletic role during the actual games themselves and matches themselves. And we've now, I think, come a long way in terms of being in the box on Google during big games, big news events. And those users, understandably, aren't looking for a score. You're not going to go through a paywall to get a score. So having a little bit more coverage and content available for free and just optimizing, trying to optimize as best as we could with the talent and resources we had for each of those channels. The biggest thing I would say that we learned over time is there's a lot of optimization to be done at a channel level, but great journalism was always the silver bullet if there was one. For you guys, maybe that's pulling in some big name interview or whatever it is, but when we broke the sign-stealing story back in the fall of 2019 with the Houston Astros, that story was on every news broadcast in the country that day. Local news, national news, CNN, Fox News, ESPN, we were, our name was next to that story and just... Those are those big moments, those waves of interest that are really just based on doing great journalism. And people have a way of finding great journalism when breakthrough like that. When you think about a piece like that, which I'm sure was an incredible amount of time, effort, coordination that goes into that, and you think about the outcome, obviously you're getting this press coverage, which is great. That's marketing of itself. Do pieces like that, that long-form journalism, which I think as we go on and on is moving into the past, did that drive conversion? Did you see in the data that something like that actually drove performance and subscriptions? Of course. And you know, now I think the Times, The Athletic, other publishers have the same challenge is a big story like that. You can obviously pull forward, if you will, a very large number of signups. And of course, there are always people who want to just go to Reddit and find the copy paste version of the story, unfortunately, or story gets picked up, just published in other ways. But no, I mean, I think it's not sufficient to have stories like that. They're great for your brand. They're great for the numbers that you see on the page that day. But ultimately, if you can't really habituate people, that gives you the option to then win a bunch of people over by delivering every single day or every single week. And so... Yes, those are huge days. The investigative journalism does play a role where it's, it's spiky. The Athletic wouldn't work if all we did was occasionally publish long-form investigative stories, I don't think. But every day hitting users and habituating users with great stuff and great storytelling. The good news in sports is there's always something going on, right? I think I like to this. I've heard you talk about it a bit in the past is how important the bundle came for you and the business. The thesis being that people followed these local journalists in their hometown or the sports team that they grew up with, but actually they had multiple teams around the world that they cared for. And so they might come in for one team, but end up staying because there was coverage of a number of different teams. And I think that played a part in why you came over to the UK quite quickly. Can you just work through that process with us as you remember it in terms of 
the bundling insights and then whether that was leading your expansion or whether it was the expansion happened and then you found out that this was the insight that was fueling it. For sure. I think in, in the case of the UK, at that point, we're very well aware of how powerful it was going to be to have local North American sports coverage plus Premier League. But I will say this, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but there's not a slide anywhere that you will find that Alex or I produced in the early days where we said, athletic, bundle, <laughs> maybe contemplated. But honestly, we were really just focused on going market by market. That made sense to us. Make it work in Chicago, go to Toronto, go to Cleveland, go to Detroit. That was the order of operations. And we did not necessarily think, and maybe this is because we were more in that local fan segment. Maybe Alex would have a different perspective on this, but I was thinking about it as there's Chicago fans, there's Toronto fans, there's Cleveland fans. Again, it was one of those things where the intersection of data and instinct and intuition was when we went into our second market, which we did in late 2016, we started to see really clearly in the data hockey fans. So they were following the Maple Leafs and the Blackhawks. Those were the two teams that we covered. There was just as many users in that bucket as there were the traditional local bucket. And so we saw this evidence that people were loving the fact that they could access coverage from different sources and different beats. We saw that in the data. We actually, at one point, contemplated saying, should there be individual SKUs? If you're in Chicago, should you have to pay more to get access to other coverage from other cities? That was going to be really hard technically. So we said, actually, let's just do the bundle thing and see how that goes. Basically, one tier gets you access to everything. It came through loud and clear as we expanded that fans loved the bundle. As you said, they have these really diverse interests at a sport level, or maybe they grew up in one city and now they live in another. And just letting users really customize and personalize the product based on that was so powerful. And it's funny, an early version of what is the athletic was we were unbundling the sports page of the local newspaper. But I think of it as we were really rebundling from the very beginning. The other thing I will say in the same vein is another thing you will not see in an early slide from me or Alex was anything about deciding to hire national reporters. We actually thought that was just a lot more of a competitive space with ESPN, with Fox, with Sports Illustrated, with The Ringer, Grantland. But we had the opportunity pretty early on within the first two years to hire some higher profile national reporters. And we were sort of like, does this make sense? We were so laser focused on the markets. And these weren't really traditionally just data-driven decisions. We had to make that leap of faith that there was something bigger happening that maybe we hadn't even originally contemplated. So we did it, worked out. And by the time we launched in the UK in 2019, it was very clear to us that what we were building was not just a portfolio of local markets, but something that was going to be for sports fans everywhere. When you think about that, transition to including national coverage. I think about localization as being hyper niche and then the national as being more broad. What did the data show in terms of funnels for subscriptions? Were the national writers as big as that original local thesis? Was there anything interesting that came out of that? What we saw was that Adam over at Workweek has this phrase that people follow people, which I like because that's what we saw. There was a lot of loyalty to somebody like a Ken Rosenthal, who we hired. Imagine someone like Ken Rosenthal as the leading newsbreaker and journalist covering the sport of baseball being told that he didn't need to write for Fox Sports website back in whatever it was 2017. But we went in and said, you are the authority on the sport. And so if you're following the Cubs on The Athletic, why wouldn't you want to have access to somebody like Ken? Certainly the folks that we hired that were national they were doing different types of stories. It was less about the day-to-day, -day, what was happening on a beat. And it was more 
big features. It was more breaking news, but those formats clicked just as well. Touching on the talent point, it does feel like that was one of the key observations is people follow people, happens at the local level where you can have these local monopolies, but even at the national level. And you touched a little bit upon how you were different in approaching talent in terms of compensation and equity. If you were to boil it down to the most important things for creating long-term alignment with your employees, because I think we're in this interesting time in media where each individual person could be their own brand. They could start their Substack and see how it works. What would you point to as being the most important things from that pie of things that you did differently at The Athletic with your talent? I touched on this, but if you asked our staff, and obviously it's somewhat different now because we're part of a much bigger parent organization. But if you go back a little bit and ask our staff in terms of why wouldn't someone here just go off? Maybe they've even seen their subscription metrics. They think they could sort of build a business of their own. Go to Substack. The answer was people love being part of a team and they love to be part of a culture where they not only there was a Slack channel with all the baseball writers and that was really cool. And the athletics like hang out at the winter meetings in San Diego. We felt like we were the cool kids. The support system, having when a writer's traveling and they need help with their expenses or their travel, all those value adds that that's not to pick on Substack. That's not what they do. But I think the culture of just great teamwork. And one thing that I don't think Alex or I have talked about publicly was just the ability for journalists to, to collaborate on stories to combine sources. Someone may have a local source, someone else may have a national source or someone with a league or someone with an agent. Actually put those sources together to break news, to produce reporting that otherwise wouldn't be possible. In some ways, how we arrived at this, that really unique culture was a little bit path dependent. I would say we were fortunate slash lucky. We didn't necessarily know going in how important it was to even just hire great editors I think editors play an unbelievably important role. I think they're undervalued. Again, that's not what Substack does, so it's different. But I think if you ask our staff, they'd say being part of a team where they have great editors, they can work together on projects and feel like they're just part of something important. That was key for us. If we transition a little bit into the business model itself, some of the lessons there, I want to start high level. When you think about the market environment that you were operating in, it was very much different at the early stages. But at some point, there was a huge reward for scale, for top line growth, for subscription revenues, and very much at the expense of profitability in the short term. And I'm curious, you mentioned those early days in terms of not having funding, building Chicago in a very piecemeal fashion. How much did that market environment impact the way that you actually operated the business? Was the funding that was coming in driving a lot of those decisions to really go after scale? If it were an environment like today, do you think you would operate much differently? I'm just curious about how much it actually had an impact on the actual operations of the business. I think we went into a few markets and basically our conclusion was some markets worked really well. Some took a little more time than others. There's always a spectrum, but we were very confident and we were able to convince, obviously, the folks that invested in The Athletic that our ability to continue to launch new markets, we're very confident that that would lead to growth. At the same time, I think we were very keen and anxious to plant flags and move quickly before someone else decided to go and launch something similar. So I think speed and capital were actually competitive advantages for us. I believe we were always more disciplined than maybe it would 
seemed just based on the amount of money that we did raise, which was a lot, it was over a hundred million dollars, but we knew the formula and we knew the math and we knew the runway required to get a market or whatever it was from that launch point to point where we felt like, hey, the unit economics here are on a path to sustainability, even though it is expensive. We were building a moat. Moats are expensive, really hard to build. The vision of the bundle of having a, truly a one-stop shop for the best sports journalism in the world was going to be expensive. I think we eventually, it was really hard in the beginning. It got easier when we started to crack that formula. Would we go back and do anything differently? I don't think so. I mean, would it look differently if we were going to try to build the athletic in a more difficult fundraising climate? I think so. We'd probably just go slower, but that would be okay. We saw speed and capital as an advantage that we had as founders who, to an extent, have had those roots in Silicon Valley. A key piece of that unique economic equation is the price of the product. And there's been a lot of discussion on the price of the athletic where you have this very appealing introductory offer, and then the price comes after a year, you start paying the full price. And I would still argue it's not that expensive for what you get. When did that model start to solidify? And I think hand in hand with that comes this very tight paywall that you've always run, where you can't even really read an article until you've paid at least the two pound in the UK introductory offer. When did that start to become the thing that you were going to focus on? And it seems as though you haven't really wavered from that. From a pricing standpoint, we, in the beginning, if memory serves, we felt like $5 a month. Who wouldn't pay $5 a month? I want to say that was the extent of the sophistication of our pricing decision. At least in US dollars, it's more than that now. But no, we wanted to clearly provide value to the users. And we experimented with every permutation of the dollar for 30 days, the dollar for six months, all those different permutations. None of that really mattered as much as it did to get someone in, regardless of what they were paying for the first year or the first month or the first six months. If they became habituated, of course, there's always users that try to find a way to get back on that introductory pricing offer or whatever. But for the most part, we saw that users would graduate up to that full price. We still price the athletic on a standalone basis to be very affordable for what you get, which is we're publishing over a hundred stories per day. Even if you're reading two or three articles per day, we're providing just tremendous, tremendous value. And, and now obviously as part of the New York Times bundle. We're seeing users that are coming in from that pathway and getting even more value. Were there any interesting insights about churn that came about? It sounds so obvious, but just creating habits was the most important thing. It was less about pricing and it was less about, hey, this fan base was really excited for a year and then they checked out. Most of our readers, the more teams or leagues or authors that they followed, obviously led to more readership. You're not going to simulate that. If you're just a diehard Cubs fan and that's the only thing you care about, we're probably not going to get you following leads or the Buffalo Bills. So that was really appreciating that we were for the fans with a lot of deep interests that maybe disparate cutting across different geographies or sports or seasons of the sports calendar allowed us to really build habits in. In terms of the application, the website, I think we went through this era where Websites were no longer destinations. Everything was being funneled via search or some type of app. And many businesses and media companies built around that specifically. I personally always felt like the app was designed to be its own destination in the sense that you show up, you see what's there. How much was that actually the case versus just my impression of it? That's one thing I would ask. If you do have an outlook on it, 
thinking about positioning. There's so many changes happening to privacy laws and just what search is actually going to drive algorithms changing. When you think about positioning a media business and how much of your website should be this all-in destination and being where people show up, how do you think about that as a strategic focus? As I said, I think in the early days, people were not subscribing because we had a nice website and a nice mobile app, and I'm underselling it. We have an unbelievably great product stack and it's very customizable, clean reading experience, fast load times, well-designed Silicon Valley standard of excellence there across the board. So not to undersell, I think a hell of a product that the team built is going to be just as important going forward. People come to The Athletic, they know we have great writers, but question, can we engage fans in new ways? Can we create the homepage experience to where when a big news story breaks, we want to be that first read where you're not going to ESPN to get the breaking news and come to The Athletic to read the long story later. You want to be that first read in the morning or when news breaks or when there's a game going on, or we're giving users ways to interact during games and follow writers. We have live audio rooms in our mobile app. Your tech and your media products can actually be a differentiator. I don't like the idea of, hey, we're just words and pictures that can be ported to some other screen experience that can work. But we do see the product still is very much like core to the value prop of what we're delivering. How much has that changed since joining the Times? Early days, it was very much about deep reporting in a local place where rather than finding clickbaity stories, you're doing the deep work and then someone might come for an article a week, but it'll be really insightful, something that they can't read anywhere else. The Times has been pretty upfront about we want to be the destination every day that you open up, you come to the Times, and now you'll go to the Athletics to read the sports section of that piece. Has that changed at all or is that actually always part of the psyche, but you just had to build out the staff to be able to deliver both sides of that equation? I would say that evolution started well before we were acquired, but the Times has really helped us to accelerate towards that vision. It's what they do really well, I think, in the news world of being the first place you go when there's a big story, but also following up with depth and having a front page, homepage experience, whatever you want to call it. There's an active curation happening in real time. So no, I mean, I think they've helped us accelerate towards that, understand the many benefits that come with that not just in terms of serving your existing audience, but bringing new audiences in who are maybe on the cusp of subscribing, things like that. So using newsletters, again, is another version of the front page of what's going on in the world of sports. I think the Times obviously has a great newsletter offering and we've continued to build ours out. So I think it's really just more of a continuation, honestly. When you think about other add-on businesses, other revenue lines, there's some obvious things with events and merchandise and other things that could be viewed as maybe net neutral, but they act as marketing, audience engagement tactics. Do you think about any of those as core to the business? And when you think about what would be a natural add-on or extension or things that are most interesting to you, things that you would encourage the talent to be doing, what would those be? The core is always you start with the journalism and hopefully the relationship with the reader who's paying to get access to that. I think that's still the main focus. But Certainly, there are really interesting ways to extend commercially, and the New York Times graciously has helped us a lot in terms of beginning to think through what some of those extensions and ideas may be, and probably hired quite a lot against that thesis in terms of building out our commercial team since we got acquired, building out some franchises that may primarily live off campus away from the core product, and that could be audio, video, events, 
And we've seen our users respond positively to some of that already. And historically, even getting access to the writers at an event is such a cool experience for our subscribers. So I think there's a lot there. It still feels like it's early days for us exploring it. You're really well placed to answer a question that I struggle answering a lot of the time. So I can hand it over to you. In terms of like a multimedia, whether your core product was writing, journalism, and then you launched a bunch of podcasts, videos, just how did you think about each of the, did you think about them all the same in terms of delivering really interesting stories to readers, listeners, viewers, or did you think about them slightly differently? They all have slightly different unit economic profiles uh, in terms of the costs of publishing and revenues associated with them. Personally, so biased on this one, just as an aside, I love to read. I get very impatient <laughs> when I got to go two to three X speed. And I love how you guys have all the transcripts set up. I think that's insight was actually just these strongly held media preferences. There are readers, there are listeners, there are watchers, and there are people that maybe do both, but usually have a preference. What we early on realized, hey, we could, with our existing staff, say, hey, let's go turn on a bunch of podcasts. And the people that love to read our journalist's work, some subset of them are going to love to listen to those reporters. The challenge with audio, just to use that one, you're trying to win one of those precious time slots in a person's rotation. On the consumer side, it seems very clear that there have been a few products that have really put their pucks in and habituated users the daily from the New York Times. Those rotations are a little bit fixed. If you really want to win one of those precious time slots, I think you really need to optimize for the person that maybe is a listener first. And in sports media, at least on the broadcast side, the types of formats, they're not as journalism forward. It's more of an entertainment product. It's more conversational. It's more opinion-based. It's more reacting to whatever crazy thing happened in the game last night as opposed to storytelling, I would say. There's a right format for each medium. Certainly, there are some staff and talent that are so versatile they can go anywhere. But others might be better suited to one thing versus another. So that was a little bit of our journey. and, And I would say we're still on that. I love how everything that you've done is rooted in serving you guys first. I think that's really important insight. And I think that generally keeps people on the straight and narrow. I have to ask a question about the integration into the times. It seemed like at the time when the news came out, everyone had an opinion on all facets of the deal and what was happening. I'm more curious about internally how you manage the transition. I imagine your own staff had opinions as well. So how do you manage that transition keeping the culture that we've already talked about intact and making sure that everyone's fired up and aligned in the next stage of the journey. I think just to go back and click before we get to that was leading up to the exit itself. It was a very stressful time, just given that we were obviously navigating what we were going to be doing as business at a board level between my co-founder and I, that truly felt like the last level of the proverbial video game in a lot of ways. And it was an out-of-body experience when we did get to the finish line. But For us, the most important thing was we knew when we decided to sell to the New York Times that it was, you could not pick a better partner in terms of, first and foremost, their commitment at an institutional level to journalism. That is first principles. And that felt really good for us in terms of the outlook was really, I think, hopeful in terms of the newsroom, being able to continue to do what we're doing, producing great coverage. There's a lot of change. Alex and I both have been around the company two years ago. We've been around for most of that time. And I give a lot of credit to the the Times holding up their end of the bargain, investing in The Athletic, continuing to bring it to the forefront of their product on their homepage and helping us grow and helping us find a real path to sustainability. I mean, the team over there is great. They didn't tell me to say this, but I will sing their praises. I think Meredith is 
an unbelievable CEO. She has one of the hardest jobs in the world. Any given day, she may have the president bagging on the times or the newsroom that she has to manage. There's the family structure. And so it's just a really hard job. It's very public facing, but they've been great. And obviously the times overall the business has been one of the winners in a climate and a space where there haven't been many of those. It's been really cool to see how they work. The similarities, the differences, obviously you can imagine we were a startup with a startup culture. They're not a startup, but it's a really, really, truly impressive institution. Overall, I think it's been a process, but we feel really happy and vindicated that we made the right move. I'd only echo Dom throughout this conversation. It has been very clear how authentic your interest is in sports, in journalism, and then in reading text. I like that. And it comes across very clearly. When you think about what you observed early on when building The Athletic, at the time, it was, I think, a very unique insight that people are attracted to people. You can build around these journalists. They have these local moats. That, to me, was a very unique observation. You paired that with a business model, which was not necessarily in vogue at the time with subscription-based media, very much so now. When you fast forward to today and you think about either the opportunities that are out there that aren't fully captured or people doing interesting things, whether that's companies that are maybe testing some interesting things that you think really have legs. What would you point to just in terms of in the current climate, maybe things that are opportunities for others or things that are on your mind that you're thinking about? Yeah, I I wish I had all the answers there. Probably make a lot of money, but (laughs) Well, you did well with those two (laughs) insights early on. So yeah, you could save some for the rest of us. Well, look, I think there's some interesting energy right now in the trade media space, the B2B space, where it's funny on the consumer side, I think think it was like Netflix CEO or founder at one point had said, our competition is Fortnite or something. (laughs) And sleep. Sleep was another competition, which I love that one. That was one of my favorite lines. Yeah, Yeah, some pithy quote and... But the truth is on the consumer side, if you're trying to build a media brand, obviously your competition is Fortnite, it is Netflix, it is YouTube, it is all those things. There's orders of magnitude more difficult, I think, than finding a really interesting niche and just do whatever you have to do to hyper-serve that niche. And then can you move on to the next one? And can you start to stitch those together somehow? And there's a brand story. And obviously I would say in this climate, I don't know if there's a version of The Athletic in some other space or whatever, but just being talent forward, I think is a prerequisite. That's just where audiences are. That is now how they relate to the media and the world. And so, I don't know, I think there's some cool stuff happening on the B2B side. Axios was, they're not new, but we got to know them pretty well. And I think they did all those things pretty well going back to 2016 and and they continue to be successful. State Affairs, Workweek, there are others, but those are easy ones maybe. On the consumer side, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just a matter of If you want to be a publisher, you really have to find a way to partner with great talent and you have to start with a niche. If it was golf, you wouldn't want to launch a golf publication. You'd want to actually focus on putting or not even just putting, but left-handed putting would be the niche. Yeah, (laughs) And then you build from there. And I think that's the new model. I love it. Well, it's been a really fun conversation. Excellent lessons, reflections, some humorous moments there. Appreciate you sharing the knowledge and yeah, big fans over here, of what you built and what continues to go on at The Athletic and The Times. So thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You felt honored after that. You had some very kind words for Adam there. I did. How'd you feel? 
<laughs> well, let me tell you why. I, this might just be because I was getting served junk by various algorithms that I was doing some research on. But it feels like everyone has an opinion about his business that he's built. And they're not overwhelmingly positive, a lot of them, whether it was the subscription element, how they grew, why they sold, who they sold to. Everyone has an opinion. And so I just wanted to share with him that I thought what they've built is incredible. It's one of the biggest exits, I think, for a digital media business ever. That is no easy task and I think should be celebrated a bit more than it probably is. And as someone who... And I told him this, he's been slogging his guts out in the media world for a few years, having never been in the media business before. It's not an easy game to play. And they did a really good job in a non-traditional manner. When they started, no one wanted to know about subscriptions. It was all advertising. It was all Facebook ads and stuff. And they raised money, which is also not necessarily that straightforward. So they overcame a lot of hurdles. And I wanted to make sure that he knew that I admired him. I'm sure he will forget about that. He's probably already forgotten about it, but I just wanted to make it known. You did. I was there. I witnessed it. <laughs> You made it very known. <laughs> I would agree with you in the way that you put it there, just in terms of the opinions that are out there. And it was interesting in the conversation because when I was asking the question about how much did the market change your strategy, because the market was very much rewarding subscriptions and scale and not rewarding profitability. So if you would have told me, absolutely, it was, this is what we did to build a business. And they exited. So after that, I think so many people forget. If you run a DCF, there is the cash flows from year to year, and then there is the terminal multiple. What does that terminal multiple mean? It's, oh, I don't know. I can't forecast that far out, so I'm going to slap a multiple on it. But what that can really be is, what will somebody buy the business for? And that is a cash flow that comes into the business account. So that has to be taken into consideration. And I think a lot of people forget about that. But what was better was that his answer was more along the lines of, no, we proved out what we thought was the thesis. And then once we realized it worked in a few markets, we wanted to grow it fast. So actually even even more thoughtful approach to it, which I appreciated hearing. And then just his genuine interest in what he was building and building something for himself and what they were interested in doing. I like that. I think it's always going to be useful when you yourself are the consumer of what you're actually building, which was very clear and it came across in a very authentic way throughout that conversation. Yeah, I agree with almost all of that. Other than you said that the market was rewarding subscriptions, which it ended up rewarding. But when they first started, media had to be free. That was the thing. Why is anyone going to come to your site that's behind a paywall? But they didn't raise capital at that point. Yeah, fair. They poured the fuel on the fire and they operated differently at that point. He was saying, we didn't raise capital when we launched in Chicago. They were very much doing it almost bootstrap fashion. So that led me to believe, okay, it was just a matter of when the market started rewarding it is when they changed the strategy. But it was more about the insight that it proved out. So yeah, I think that's right. I think my point's still right. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I said it was yeah. mostly right. That's something. You should be happy with that. Yes. A couple of notes from me. I enjoyed the fact that you managed to make sure that at the beginning of the conversation, he was aware that you use Strava because you run. I thought that was a nice addition to the conversation. And then this is something that I've had a few times from different media organizations. And I think we need to try and bring it into our own business of using truly viral moments. And I need you to explain what the signpost story was. Sign stealing. Yeah. Story. What's that? It was this big issue in baseball where the Houston Astros were stealing signs. So basically, if you know what pitch is coming, it's going to uh. make it a lot easier to hit that pitch. And this was running rampant throughout the organization. And as a non-Houston Astros fan, yeah, it was pretty <laughs> bad. And they broke that story. So it was a pretty big deal. There were a lot of suspensions handed out. A lot of people got fired, kicked out of the league. So yeah, big news for sure. 
there you go. So there's that viral moment for them, which you said was an inflection point where they managed to go national. And then when I was listening to the oral history of No Laying Up, which has reached 10 years, they mentioned a bunch of these small pockets of what seemed really silly and random at the time. I think they reported that Trump had spent 18 holes with Rory McIlroy one day. And this was around the time when Everyone was saying how much golf Trump was playing and him and his team had come out to say he played a couple of holes, but it turned out it was 18 and they first tweeted about it and then that went national. And finally, you've got no laying up in all of these publications reporting on the president. Obviously, free marketing to some extent, which gets your brand out there in all different corners of the world. And I was just wondering what our version of that is. I think to some extent, we got there a little bit with Charlie Munger and John Collison. But I think that's a pretty light version. Yeah. I mean, if you want to try and go break the sign stealing story <laughs> or the equivalent of that, which resulted in one of the biggest headlines and biggest news stories in baseball probably in 25 years, you're more than welcome to explore what that version might be for us. I certainly hear you. In the podcast world, that's the equivalent of Elon smoking the joint on Rogan <laughs> and having a video clip all over the place and a lot more people paying attention to Joe Rogan after that. We inherently are not very viral. It's something that we've learned. We're not very memeable. We're not very viral. It's something we have to work on. But I think it's not so much recreate what others have done, maybe just find our own version of it. Yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. And you telling me that I should just do better work to go more viral, I think is also <laughs> symptomatic of our relationship. Oh. We have some transcripts get referenced in congressional hearings. So that's happened from time to time. That's true, actually. I don't think it was a good news story at the time, was it? It wasn't. But yeah, all good. Yeah. All news is good news. It's when no one's talking about you. That's the worst moment. Exactly. Any other major notes that you have? This is, I think, shifted while I've been at this business. There's one point where every major journalist was going to go direct by themselves, build a Substack or equivalent, and then talk to their readers and capture all the value that they create. The way he laid out the value of being part of a team and working together, I think that stuff feels a bit airy-fairy sometimes rather than, no, but you could capture 100% or 90% of what you create. The team aspect, I think, gets lost a lot, but it's definitely making a comeback. And for me, it feels so relevant. A friend of the show, Packy, wrote a really good piece at the end of last year about the challenges of he had two or so massive years, huge growth in his business, and he's a one-man band writing about tech. And last year wasn't a bad year per se, but it was just more of a, hmm, yeah, things just stalled a little bit in terms of growth. You could see in his writing that took a bit of a toll because he didn't have anyone beside him to be like, oh, no, it's fine. We can do X, Y, and Z or someone else in the organization is having a huge year and you're benefiting indirectly from that or in some cases, somewhat directly. That can't be lost. And the feeling camaraderie and sharing notes and stuff, I think is really, really real. And it's not for everyone, but I think it's for a lot of people. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think it has a huge value. It's just hard for people to understand or appreciate that value. I don't know what the term for that is, but it's almost like if I just phrase it like offense wins championships, they're popular, they get paid the most defense while it's incredibly important to any team. It's just never going to get that same attention that offense does. And then what's the version of offense? It's well, I capture more of the economics. I can do most of this myself. What's the version of defense? It's, well, having this infrastructure around you to handle stupid things like accounting and expenses and all of that. And you really can't know or can't put a value on that until you don't have it. So I do expect the pendulum to swing back a little bit. And especially for certain people where it's not in their personalities 
to want to be doing a lot of this stuff on their own and want to have to worry about some of that other stuff. And it's just what version does that take? Because Substack's version of that is, well, we'll give you all the infrastructure. You just have to write, but we send it, we manage the system, but they obviously fall short in certain areas. So it's like, what degree of that do you want? And where is it going to settle out in the middle? Because it still is tough. There is that tension of short-term alignment versus long-term alignment between talent and media organizations. It's one of the trickier things out there. I don't have a conclusion to it. But yeah, your point is definitely right. And we've all experienced it ourselves for sure. Yeah, I think that's a point very well made. The final thing is just, I'm impressed how they stuck to their paywall. I think I, if I was running that business, would have been inclined to share at least one or two articles and then you've had your free ones for the month. But they stuck to their guns and kudos to them. Yeah, I completely agree. And it was funny to hear him talk about one thing I will say about him. He was an incredible guest at answering the next question we had. Yeah. <laughs> so there were so many times where I was like, I'm going to ask this. Oh, he just answered it. So he was very much keeping me on my toes. That might mean our questions were bad. He's heard them all before that he knows the next one's coming. Uh, debatable. I think he knows what the natural follow-up question is. So he knows to answer it. Some people don't. So I would put more credit to him than take away from us. I thought it was interesting to hear. You're always going to have people find ways around it. But at some point, the jokes on those people that will spend that amount of time, let's say an hour trying to find a free version of the article, <laughs> is an hour of your time worth more than $5 for the month? Something that you have to ask yourself. So I respect it quite a bit. And I love just some of the stuff they have. One of my favorite things that they produce is this publication called The Beast. And it's a NFL draft guide. Very niche topic, but it's 400 pages. And the guy who does it, this guy, Dane Brugler, I think he's been doing it for like 10 years or so. And people will reference this well after the fact. If a guy gets signed from our equivalent, like the minor leagues, and comes up, the place you can find some information on him is probably in that draft guide in The Beast. And it has really obscure comments like, grew up, small town, two brothers, one brother played, Division one basketball, sister was a track star, like all this packaged in. And it's just loads and loads of information on all these different people. And the way they send it out is like, it's a PDF with a password. It's just such a crazy <laughs> old school. Yeah. And there's a few versions of this around. And I, I don't know, there's something about that kind of stuff that I love. The Beast is one of those things that always stands out to me. It's a piece of content that I hold dearly. And it's worth the subscription alone, to be honest, 100%. All your recommendations tend to be whatever the content is, it normally is 99% just density. It's just super thick, words everywhere. And what you're describing there sounds similar. What else have I recommended? Value line, the reports. To be clear, value line, but adjusted. I think value line is just an interesting case study because they've taken a lot of information and made it condense. The problem that we often have is that things are just not concise enough. It's like cut the fluff. <laughs> and you can really force yourself to cut the fluff by taking the exercise of what Value Line does with their one pagers or what the Beast does with his draft guide. Yeah, constraints. Like it. Final credit to you for getting Adam on the show. That was someone that we had drafted in our very first document before making media was even a thing. He's someone we want to talk to, and you made it happen. So well done, you. Yep, I will gladly take that credit. You have got most of the previous guests, so <laughs> I'm just going to take this one in stride and say, <laughs> no big deal. We got it. It was a fun one, for sure. Yeah, it was great. See you all next week. Awesome. Awesome.